Well, good morning, church. Glad you are here with us to seek the Lord together, and glad for those of you that are joining us online. Um, I'm excited to get into the Word today. Before we do, I just wanted to mention one more time um, about the life groups in case you guys don't know what they are. If you'll take a look in your bulletin, you'll see a big green insert, and that is the life group homework for this week as we kick off this next quarter of life groups. And basically, the way the life groups work is you'll sign up for a group, and if you want to just check it out, uh, feel free to sign up for a group and just check it out for a week or two before you commit to the whole 10 weeks. Um, But as you look at this green sheet, uh, what you would do if you're in a life group is after the service today, you would go through and, and do this little devotional. Go through the verses, answer the questions, and then when you go to the life group um, this week, you would be going through these questions and just discussing you know, with the people there your answers, getting to talk about the Lord together, getting to pray together, and getting to know each other better as well. And so the, the big heart behind life groups is really just to grow closer to each other and grow closer to the Lord. And in my opinion, a life group is the best way to get connected here at Open Gate. So I encourage you to pray about checking it out. And again, feel free to, to trial it out for just a couple of weeks before you commit to the whole thing. Also in your uh, bulletin, you'll see that we have some fill-in-the-blanks. So if you are interested in taking notes today, uh, feel free to get that out and get your pens ready as we dig into the Word. Well, if you've been with us, you already know we're going verse by verse through the Gospel of John. Today we're going to hit John 18, verse 28, through chapter 19, verse 16. And today's message is entitled, Behold the Man. Jesus has spent the last several chapters encouraging his disciples and then praying for his disciples. But last time we read in chapter 18 how Jesus was betrayed and arrested. But it wasn't a surprise. Right? Jesus knew it was coming. Jesus knew it was about to happen. It was the whole purpose he had come for, was to come and die for us. We read how the religious leaders were so eager to put Jesus to death that they broke many of their own laws during their trial in order to condemn him. If you look at the screen, I put together a list of some of their laws. According to Jewish law, all criminal trials must begin and end during daylight. It's hard to do that when you arrest Jesus in the middle of the night and put him in trial right away. All criminal trials must be held at the official meeting place. But Jesus was first tried at the house of Caiaphas, the high priest. Criminal trials should not be held during Passover season, and only an acquittal could be issued on the day of the trial. Guilty verdicts had to wait a full day for feelings of mercy to arise. And yet Jesus, he was tried on the eve of Passover and declared guilty even prior to the trial beginning. You see, ever since Jesus rose Lazarus back from the dead, the chief priests, the religious leaders, they were ready to go out and get Jesus. We read in John 11, verse 53, it says, Then from that day on, the day that Lazarus came back to life, they plotted to put him, Jesus, to death. Criminal trials were to start with the witnesses for the defense, for Jesus. And yet, in Jesus' trials, there were no witnesses for the defense allowed, only witnesses to attack. Finally, in a criminal trial, false witness was punishable by death. But in Jesus' trial, false witness was the only thing they were looking for, 
and encouraged. In fact, in Matthew chapter 26, verse 59, it says, Now the chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death. We look at all these different rules and laws that the Jews broke in order to put Jesus on the cross. And yet, the most remarkable thing to me is not how hypocritical they were. The most remarkable thing is not, look at all of these rules they broke in order to condemn the innocent Jesus. The most remarkable thing to me is that Jesus allowed himself to be so mistreated, to put up with such unfairness and hypocrisy, and he did so all because of his deep love for you and for me. So the next time someone treats you unfairly and your blood begins to boil, just remember, Jesus endured much worse. And praise the Lord, God treats us unfairly. And if you're taking notes today, that's your first fill in the blank. Praise the Lord, God treats us unfairly. You see, God does not give us what we deserve. He offers us eternal life if we would only believe in Him. What we deserve is eternity in hell, punishment for our sin. And praise the Lord, our God is unfair. He gives us far better than we could ever ask for So at this point, the chief priests, they have fulfilled their mockery of a Jewish trial, and now they must convince the Romans to kill Jesus. And that's where we pick up in John chapter 18, verses 28 through 40. We read how Jesus is brought to Pilate. Verse 28, Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the praetorium, and it was early morning. But they themselves did not go into the praetorium, lest they should be defiled but that they might eat the Passover. You see, if the Jews entered into this Roman building, they might, they might come within six feet of a Gentile. You know, social distancing looked different back then, but it was the same thing, right? If you got too close to a Gentile, a non-Jew, then you've got Gentile cooties. You're unclean. And it was the time of the Passover feast. And so if any of the Jews had gone in and become defiled by those dirty, rotten Gentiles, then they would not be worthy to eat the Passover feast and celebrate Passover. And so, the Jews refused to go into the building, trying to uphold their, their understanding of the law. Nevertheless, that they're taking Jesus, God the Son, the God that Passover celebrates, and they're trying to murder Him. That's, that's a different point. You see, it's why Jesus said of the Pharisees in Matthew 23, verse 24, He said, "...blind guides." who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. That's what the Pharisees did. That's what the religious leaders did. Hypocritical on the things that they went to great distances to obey, and yet they left out the core. They left out Jesus. Picking up in verse 29, it says, Pilate went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered and said to him, If he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. So they're basically saying, obviously he's horrible because we're bringing him to you, right? Then, verse 31, Pilate said to them, You take him and judge him according to your law. Therefore the Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death, that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die. You see, Israel at this point was under Roman control. Rome was the big boss. 
They still allowed Israel to be a nation. They still allowed them some freedom. But one of the things that Rome had taken away from Israel is the right of capital punishment, the right to put somebody to death. And so for the Jews, according to their law, if somebody was a blasphemer, which is what they called Jesus, they deserved to die. And the Jews would kill them by throwing stones at them until they died, stoning them to death. But that right was revoked by Rome. And so they had to convince Pilate here to kill Jesus. And the, Rome, the Romans, they didn't kill people by stoning. They killed them with the cross, with crucifixion. So that's the whole story of what's going on here. They're, they're explaining to Pilate, we did judge him and we believe he deserves to die. So you need to kill him for us because we're not allowed to do the dirty work. And so verse 33, then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, are you speaking for yourself about this or did others tell you this concerning me? Pilate answered, am am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight, so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. So Jesus is explaining, look, my kingdom's not earthly. It's spiritual. It's eternal. And so we're not fighting back. We're not resisting. We're not uprising against the authorities, because my kingdom's not of this world. But Pilate, all he really touches and focuses in on is, oh, he does have a kingdom. So verse 37, Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? And you can just hear that frustration in his voice, right? As Pilate's trying to be the middleman between the angry Jews outside and this man Jesus who seems innocent inside, he's trying to discern what is truth. Ironically, Jesus said in John 14:6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so it's ironic because Pilate is here talking to the truth. And he says, what is truth? But Pilate asked it rhetorically. He didn't wait around for an answer, but he went back. And so continuing in verse 38, And when Pilate had said this, Pilate went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. You see, Pilate could see Jesus was not deserving of death. And he didn't want to be in the middle of their squabble anyway. Now, there was a tradition for the Romans to release a Jewish prisoner during the Passover season as an act of mercy and as an act of kind of appeasing the Jews as they're all congregated there. Because remember, during Passover, you had Jews from all over Israel, from all over the Roman Empire, coming together in Jerusalem to worship. And so if there's ever going to be a time of an uprising, ever going to be a time of rebellion, things are a little crazy right now. As the population in Jerusalem has skyrocketed for this this, uh, celebration. And so Pilate, he says, well, there's this tradition. Maybe I can release Jesus and appease everybody because we usually release somebody at this time. And so verse 39, Pilate says, but you have a custom that I should release someone to you at the Passover. Do you therefore want me to release to you the king of the Jews? 
Then they all cried again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. So here in John we learn Barabbas is a robber. In the Gospel of Luke, he tells us Barabbas was also a murderer and part of a rebellion. Now, don't just think, okay, this guy, he's a thief, he's a murderer, and he's a rebel. But remember, Israel is under Rome. He's been arrested by Rome. And so if he is murdering and rebelling against Rome, then this is like a Jewish William Wallace here. Barabbas is a patriot for Israel. He's one that goes out, and he goes out at night, and he slits the throat of those Romans and anybody else who is on Rome's side. And so to many of the Jews, Barabbas would kind of be like a hero. But Barabbas would not be a hero to the religious leaders because they were the ones that kind of sided with Rome because Rome put them in authority. And so even though these religious leaders would not like Barabbas, they wouldn't be for him and his what he stands for, they still chose him over Jesus because they were so desperate to get rid of Jesus, desperate to put Jesus on the cross. Continuing now in John chapter 19, in verses 1 through 16, we read how Jesus is beaten, questioned, and condemned. Verse 1, it says, So then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. If you look at the picture on the screen, the Roman scourge was a whip that looked something like this. It had, it had several different leather straps. And on the ends of which, they had these metal balls so that when a person was whipped by them, the balls would produce deep bruising in the tissue. But also on the whips were pieces of bone or glass or sharp metal so that as the bruises were producing deep bruises on the back, the sharp pieces would then rip the flesh apart and literally tear the flesh into shreds. This is one of the most horrifying things to understand about Jesus' suffering. And as he was whipped with the scourge, as his flesh is being torn apart, all of this is being done by a Roman soldier, sometimes even two, one on each side of him, so that they can get a breather between their full force blow and blow and blow. And we remember that these Roman soldiers were professionals. They didn't give up and have mercy because they saw how violent this punishment was. But this is what they were paid for. This is what they were used to. So gruesome was the Roman scourging that it was common for the victim to die just from this torture and punishment. Such intense torture helps us understand why Jesus struggled to carry his cross all the way to the place of his crucifixion, as you just imagine his entire back being ripped apart and ripped open. We read in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5, where it says, speaking of Jesus, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. By his stripes we are healed. Your next fill in the blank. It's important that we understand what Jesus endured because he did it for me. He did it for me, for each of us. 
Jesus endured all of this suffering so that he could heal us from our sin. After they scourged scourged him, we read on in verse 2. And it says, And the soldiers, they twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And they put on him a purple robe. The thorns growing around Israel are not the little thorns you see on your rose bushes at home, but they're long, perhaps an inch or more longer there in Israel. And so these were deep, sharp thorns that would cut even more into his flesh. Verse 3, Then they, the, the, the Roman soldiers, they said, Hail, King of the Jews! And then they struck him with their hands. Remember, last week in chapter 18, Jesus was already beaten by the chief priests and those who were religious leaders. They put a bag on his head and they would say, prophesy, who's going to hit you next? And they'd strike him. And so this week we see how his suffering is just continuing. And remember that this is the King of kings and the Lord of lords here wearing a crown of thorns as he's being beaten and mocked. And remember, he did this for me. He did this for you. Verse 4, Pilate then went out again and said to them, said to all the people, Behold, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no fault in him. Then Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold, the man! At this point, Pilate is still hoping to weasel his way out of not putting Jesus on the cross. He's hoping, well, look at how much we've abused Him. Look at how much we've made Him suffer. Surely this is enough to appease the crowd, to appease the religious leaders so that they'll be satisfied. This will be sufficient. That was His hope. Verse 6, Therefore, when the chief priests and officers saw Jesus, they cried out, saying, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! Pilate said to them, You take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. Still, Pilate says he doesn't deserve anything. In fact, in the other Gospels, it even says, For Pilate knew that he was delivered up. Jesus was delivered up because of envy, because of jealousy. Verse 7, the Jews answered him, and they said, We have a law, and according to our law, our Jewish law, he ought to die because he made himself the Son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard that saying, he was the more afraid, and went again into the praetorium and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. A couple interesting things here. You may sometimes hear somebody say, Jesus never claimed to be God, never claimed to be the Son of God. And yet right here, that was the whole reason the chief priests put him on the cross, is because they knew that he claimed to be God, God the Son, but they didn't believe it. And so according to Jewish law, that's called blasphemy if it's not true. The sad part is it was true. And it was the chief priests and Pharisees that were committing blasphemy by telling God he's not God. The second interesting thing here is that now Pilate learns that Jesus claims to be the Son of God, so he's sweating He's realizing this is a bigger issue than he wanted to deal with today. He thought this would be just another day at the job. And so here, he tries to question Jesus. Where where did you say you come from, Jesus? 
Where are you from? But he doesn't answer him anything. And Jesus, not opening his mouth, fulfills even more prophecy from Isaiah 53, this time in verse 7, where it says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. That's Jesus. Continuing in verse 10, Then Pilate said to him, Are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? Jesus answered, You could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Put yourself in Pilate's shoes here. Usually, the trials that you deal with are always where everything's on the line. They're up for the capital punishment. And sometimes not just them, but their whole families. And so here, Pilate is used to the victims, the defendants, begging for mercy, crying out, saying, have mercy on me. I didn't do it. It wasn't me. It was them. Don't listen to them. Defending themselves. And yet this is unique. Because here, like always, Pilate is deciding, do we kill this guy or not? But this time, he's not even defending himself. He's silent. He opened not his mouth. And Jesus says, you wouldn't have any authority unless it was given to you from above, from God. And so picking up in verse 12, it says, from then on, Pilate sought to release him. Isn't that interesting? The perfect defense was to be silent. But the Jews cried out, saying, If you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. And here's where it gets real for Pilate. Now the Jews played the political card. Pilate is stuck. You see, if he condemns Jesus to death to appease the crowd, then he knows that he's sending an innocent man to a gruesome death on the cross. But Pilate knows if he sets Jesus free and refuses to kill him, then these chief priests, the religious leaders, they would send to Rome, to Pilate's boss, to Caesar. And they would say, just so you know, Pilate over here is allowing people to become king of Israel. He's allowing rebellion and insurrection to occur right under his nose. Pilate is betraying you. And so Pilate knows that he is stuck. Pilate's supposed to be the one that has the ruling authority in the area, and yet now he's on the hot seat. He no longer feels in control because his position and his reputation are on the line. And so verse 13, When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus out, and he sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the preparation day of the Passover, and about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold, your king! But they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Interesting. Interesting, too, because back in the Old Testament, 
At one point, Israel demanded a king from the prophet Samuel. You see, they were there in the promised land, but God had been their king. They didn't have a human king yet. But Samuel the prophet, he was prophet and judge, and he was getting old. And the people said, Samuel, you give us a king. We want a king so we can be like the other nations around us. And God responded to their request in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 7. And the Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. They rejected God as their king. And that's what they're doing here in the Gospel of John. As Jesus is up on trial, they cry out, We have no king but Caesar. Again, rejecting God as their king. Verse 16, it says, Then Pilate delivered Jesus to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and led him away. The trials were over, and Jesus, the pure and spotless lamb, was sent to be sacrificed for the sin of the world. Despite the plotting of the Pharisees, God was in control this entire time. We recall in Matthew chapter 26, verses 3 through 5, it says, Then the chief priests and the scribes and the elders of the people assembled at the palace of the high priest, who was called Caiaphas. And they plotted to take Jesus by trickery and to kill him. So that was their plan. But, verse 5, they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. You see, as they plotted and planned to trick Jesus and capture him in secret, they wanted to kill him, but they didn't want to do it during the Passover feast. Because again, millions of Jews have come into Jerusalem during this time. They don't want to make a big scene about it. They don't want to give Jesus more credible audiences. They want to take care of Him on the side. And yet, things didn't go according to their plan because Jesus is here condemned to be crucified on the eve of Passover at the very time they did not want it to happen. Again, reminding us that God was in control this entire time because as Jesus, the pure and spotless Lamb, would now be crucified, sacrificed during Passover... Jesus would become the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Caiaphas, the high priest, he even prophesied about Jesus earlier. In John chapter 11, as they talked about how they're going to arrest him, in verses 49 and 50, it says, And one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, he said to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. You see, he was speaking this from his earthly perspective and he said, this is from the Lord. It's better that one man die than the whole nation die. And in Caiaphas's head, in the chief priest's heads, they all said, yes. We don't want Jesus to allow this uproar and rebellion to happen so that Rome comes through and slits all of our throats. It's better that Jesus die and suffer so that the nation of Israel can continue. Surely that's God's will. God protecting His people just sacrificed this one man's life. That was their mentality. And yet, ironically, the prophecy was true, but it spoke of eternal life. It spoke of a greater thing than they could have imagined. Because Jesus would be the one man to die 
on that cross, taking the eternal death, spiritual death, upon Himself. Far better for Him to take that death upon Himself than to allow all of us, all of Israel, all of the world, to spiritually remain dead and enter into eternity in hell. You see, that's why Jesus came. To pay for you and for me. We read in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2 in the New Living Translation. It says, Jesus, He Himself is the sacrifice that atones or pays for our sins. And not only our sins, but the sins of all the world. You see, God was in control through this whole time. This was always His plan. He did it for you, and He did it for me. As we look at this passage, we see there were several different responses to Jesus. I want to take some time and look at the different people groups here and see how they differently responded to Him. And we're going to start off with the religious leaders. The religious leaders, they rejected Jesus because He didn't fit into their mold. You see, they wanted a God who supported their authority, a God who supported their wealth. Remember, they were the ones that profited from that black market going on in the temple during Passover where you would travel with your pure and spotless lamb and you'd bring it to the temple and say, I'm here to offer this lamb. And they would say, well, I'm sorry, sir, there's a little blemish right there. We only take what's pure and holy for the Lord, so we can't accept that offering. But you can purchase this pre-approved lamb Right here, right now. It's triple the cost, but it's pre-approved. But we can't take your Gentile Roman money. You need to first exchange your Roman coins for the Jewish temple coins. And you can do that over here, and we're going to give you a very poor exchange rate so we can make even more money off of you. These were the guys becoming wealthier and wealthier because of all of this hypocrisy. And so when Jesus shows up, they say, no, this can't be my God because my God wants me to be Wealthy. My God wants me to be in authority. My God wants me to be at the top. He wouldn't strip away my reputation. He wouldn't call me a brood of vipers. That's not my God. And so Jesus revealed them, the chief priests, to be sinners in need of a Savior. He showed them that they were self-righteous, falling short of the mark. And so they rejected Him. And we might say the religious leaders chose comfort over Christ. That's your next fill in the blank. The religious leaders chose comfort over Christ. Many in the world are guilty of the same thing today. They commit the idolatry of creating a God in their mind that fits with their mold. A God who does not infringe upon their comforts. They say things like, well, my Jesus doesn't have a problem with my sin. My Jesus will let me into heaven because I'm a good person. My Jesus won't send anyone to hell because He is loving. He is love. The problem is that kind of Jesus is a false God. You see, that kind of Jesus cannot save because that's not the Jesus that died on the cross. What about the Roman soldiers? They were simply doing their job, right? Following orders without giving much thought to who they were mocking. We might say the soldiers rejected Jesus because they were indifferent. The soldiers rejected Jesus because they were indifferent. They had a job to do and they did it. But we read in Philippians chapter 2, 
that there's coming a day. In chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Can you imagine being in the shoes of those, of those soldiers in that day? Do you think they'll be interested then? Do you think they'll consider Jesus as they're forced to kneel before Him? I think there will be many people on that day who greatly regret the fact that they were indifferent towards Christ while on the earth. Because they disregarded Jesus, they rejected Him, never giving thought to Him. And there's coming a day where it's too late. And if that's you, if you've been procrastinating, don't wait any longer. Don't wait until you're forced to kneel before Jesus because then it will be too late. Decide now to follow Him and surrender your life to Him. Pilate was an interesting one to me. As we look at him in this passage, Pilate, he knew that Jesus was innocent, but he feared man's disapproval. You see, Pilate chose what was easy rather than what was right. Pilate chose to do what was easy rather than what was right. He tried to protect himself and please man. But unfortunately, he succeeded in neither. History tells us that a few years later, Pilate was stripped of his position because of other issues going on, and Pilate committed suicide. We read in Proverbs chapter 29, verse 25, where it says, The fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. The fear of man brings a snare or brings a trap. And I wonder how many people reject Jesus because of the fear of man. They don't want to be lumped into that group of Christians. They don't want to be identified as a Jesus follower. They're more focused on pleasing others, and because of that, they miss out on pleasing God. But what about for you and me, Christians? Do we struggle with this? You see, when our boss wants us to fib the numbers, or our friends come to us wanting to gossip with us, or our classmates are all throwing insults around, or the movie we're watching suddenly turns inappropriate. Do we do what is easy, or do we do what is right? It's easy to go with the flow. It's easy to blend in. But standing up for what is right brings confrontation. Standing up for what is right can be awkward. Because all of a sudden, you're the only one different. Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 5, verse 10, He says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see, if we seek to live for the approval of Jesus, then our rewards are not going to be the temporary fleeting praises of men, but our reward will be eternal. Something that cannot be taken away from us. And our reward will be to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. And we'll have that for all eternity. Last of all, we look at Barabbas. Barabbas knew he was guilty, and yet he walked away free. He knew that he was guilty, but by some miracle, he was set free because the innocent Jesus had paid his punishment. That cross that Jesus took was surely set up for 
Barabbas to take. And at the last moment, there was a switch, a substitute. I wonder what happened to Barabbas. Did he go back to fighting the rebellion? Did he go back to murdering Romans in the night? Or did his life change? We don't know. But here's what we can know. We can be sure that when Barabbas looked up on that hill and he saw those three crosses, we can be sure that he was thankful. We can be sure that he would have said, that was supposed to be me. That was supposed to be me. What about you? Do you look to the cross and understand that was supposed to be me? That was supposed to be me paying for my own sin, paying for my own thoughts and actions and rebellion against the God of all things. Jesus took our place and suffered and died so that you and I who are guilty can walk away free. It's not because you're worth it or you're worthy. It's because he deemed you as worth it, worth the sacrifice. And Jesus says, I did it for you. But please understand, when we say we are Christians, when we say that we believe in Jesus, salvation is more than believing Jesus is king. It's making Jesus your king. James tells us in James chapter 2, verse 19, You believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. You see, you may believe that Jesus is God, that He died on the cross and rose again. And those are truths and good things to believe. But even the demons believe those things are true. You see, being a Christian isn't simply believing truths about God. Being a Christian is making Jesus your God. Making Jesus your authority. The way that you live your life should be affected by the fact that you've said, I'm His. I'm living for Him. Following Jesus means that we strive to do marriage or singleness His way. We strive to raise our kids or treat our neighbors His way. We still stumble. We still fall. We're sinners. But we seek to do things His way because our life is no longer our own. We've been bought with the precious blood of Christ. If we are only a Christian in knowledge, well, yes, I believe that. I believe Jesus is God. I believe He rose again. And we're not a Christian in practice. Then we need to stop and ask ourselves, is Jesus really my King? Am I really saved? Or do I just know about Him and not really know Him? Pilate cried out to the crowd and he said, Behold your king. And my question to you and myself is, is he? Is he your king? Will he be your king tomorrow at work or at school? Will he be your king for all eternity? Jesus suffered and died so that it could be so. So that he could not only be your king, but so that he could be your heavenly Father, and enjoy eternity with you forever and ever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you loved us enough to endure such suffering, to endure such humiliating torture, 
so that our sins could be paid for in full. Lord, it's amazing to understand that your sacrifice was so perfect on the cross that all of our sins that we've already committed, the sins we still struggle in today, and the sins that we will still struggle in tomorrow and for the rest of our life, Lord, they're already paid for in full. Lord, when you look at those of us who have believed in you and made you our Lord, God, you say we are perfect because we're covered by the blood made holy by you. God, would you help us to live our lives not for ourselves, but to live for you. Lord, if there's anybody here today or listening online, they know about you, they know truths about you, but maybe they've been procrastinating or perhaps they've just been a Christian in knowledge but not in practice. God, I pray today would be that day where they confess you as Lord, where they cry out to you and say, Lord, would you be my God? Would you be my King? I don't want to just know about you, but I want to surrender my life to you. God, would you fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit and empower us to be witnesses for you, to bring glory to your name. And God, help us to not fear man. Help us to not be indifferent. Lord, help us to make this life all about you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. During this next worship song, we're going to take communion. If you'd like to remember Jesus, remember the sacrifice that he made for you, then I encourage you, during this next song, grab one of the cups. They're double stacked with the juice and the bread together. And then hold on to it until after this song's over. I'll come back up and we'll pray and partake together. So go ahead and remain seated for this song and let's worship. Think about the suffering that Jesus endured. By his stripes we are healed. Bought with the blood of Christ. We say thank you, Lord. We say you did this for me. And so as we take the juice that represents his blood spilled for us and the bread representing his body broken for us, just remember he did this for you. Go ahead. of your love that you would endure so much for each of us and Lord I thank you that you're not on the cross anymore you're not in the grave anymore but Lord you're seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven Lord you are on the throne Lord you're coming back for us one day and Lord you suffered and died to provide for us an eternity of a relationship with you. Thank you, Jesus. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.
Would you stand with me and let's worship one more song. Amen. What a great song to end on. Focusing on the lordship and kingship of Jesus. He's on the throne, even now. No matter what's going on in your life, no matter what's going on in our world, He's in control. If you made a decision today to rededicate your life to Christ, to make Him your king for the first time or all over again, I encourage you to come up front. Let us know. We'd love to pray with you and encourage you. At the very least, fill out the response card in the back and put it in the offering box so we can be praying for you and supporting you during this time. And if you have prayer requests for anything else, please come forward. We'd love to pray with you. God bless you. Don't forget to sign up for a life group or ask questions about it. Have a great week and know that He did all this for you. God bless.